Welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which is predicted to reach epidemic levels in our lifetime. We will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to increase our understanding of how superbugs are impacting our healthcare systems globally. They will also highlight actions that we can take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections. This series is co-created by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Marnie Peterson. Welcome back to the final episode in the first season of Superbugs and You. In this episode, we will discuss how the COVID pandemic has impacted strategies to address antimicrobial resistance. Our first guest, a patient, describes the experience of being one of the first COVID cases in the United States. She also has the perspective of being a healthcare provider. The clinician in this episode will review how his hospital adapted their stewardship program to address COVID and the use of antimicrobials in COVID patients. And finally, the researcher will discuss with us how his organization is serving as a catalyst for the development of new antibiotic research and development through public and private partnerships. We will review how the COVID pandemic has created opportunities to address antimicrobial resistance in the future. Our first guest is a professor and COVID survivor. Her name is Dr. Marilyn Stebbins. Hi, my name's Marilyn, and I have been a pharmacist for 30-some years and uh, a professor for the last 25. And so that makes me a, a pharmacy educator as well as a clinician and uh, have really found my voice um, over the last, I would say, two decades for with respect to advocacy and treatment for the underserved, uh, as well as um, advocating the role of the pharmacist uh, on the care team and expanding the role of the pharmacist as the, the comprehensive medication manager. So Marilyn, you, you're a professor at uh, University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, is that correct? It is. And for a long time, you've really had a focus of, of care management of patients in individuals in an outpatient setting or clinic. Correct. Always, so, always in the outpatient setting. That's my whole career. So earlier this year, um, you, you became infected with COVID. And I'd like to start at the beginning of that story and ask you to describe when you became ill and some of your early... In- early symptoms, and how it was you came to realize you actually had COVID? Yeah. Um, so just to put some context around this, I was an incredibly early patient in the U.S. story. Um, I'm somewhere between case 69 and case 102. So when you think of the millions of people who've contracted COVID in the United States now, I was very early. Uh, At the end of February, my life seemed very normal, and uh, I'm an avid distance trail runner. I just finished a a long-distance 
race and was getting ready for a ski vacation, just a quick three days up to Northern Idaho to catch some really good powder skiing with my husband and my brother-in-law. The Saturday before we left, we were leaving on a Sunday. I had mentioned to my running partner after finishing a morning run that I was going to head to the pharmacy to pick up some zinc and some elderberry syrup because I was starting to feel like I was getting the prodrome of a cold and had just a minor sort of nagging um, cough. And everyone I'd been around the week before was sick. I think that I am in a... um, I run a program for transitions of care, patients who've left the hospital. Um, I work with students to do discharge uh, phone calls for people who are having medication issues post-discharge. And my students and residents uh, in mid-February were traveling all over the country interviewing for residencies. And so they were, I think, um, perhaps my contagions. And uh, but I didn't think, none of us thought anything of it. We just knew it was a bad cough and cold season. So I was um, getting ready and, and honestly felt fine. Flew up to um, Spokane and then rented a car and went up to Northern Idaho to ski and felt fine. You know, no real symptoms. Um, skied hard, skied a lot longer days than I'm used to. And so I was tired and my muscles hurt. But no more than any sort of exertional exercise. And on the last day, uh, the third day of skiing in the afternoon, I said to my husband and my brother-in-law, hey, anybody else have burning lungs when they breathe in? And they said, no. And they said, it's probably, you know, just the altitude and the really cold air and you're skiing hard. And so I didn't think anything of it. But I did remember that, you know, taking a breath in, um, hurt at that point. And, uh, and the next morning we got up early to fly home. And I just remember it's about an hour and a half drive to Spokane that I got hit with a horrible, horrible bout of what I thought was food poisoning. Cause I had a horrific case of diarrhea and nausea. And, um, so I just assumed it had been something I ate the night before and came home and and um, so got on the plane and and then got home. And that next day, that was a Thursday. And on Friday morning, I woke up and I could barely get myself to the bathroom in the morning because I ached all over. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got the flu. Um, I really feel like I've got a viral infection and I was coughing and I thought, what, what is this? I had the flu shot or I had taken the flu shot, but sent a message to my doctor and said, I'd really like to be seen. I think I have the flu. And she said, I'd like you to go to the emergency room. And I said, really, I'm not going to the emergency room. This is, you know, the emergency room right now is full of people that are sick and they've all got these coughs and colds and I don't really want to go sit for hours. I feel horrible. And she said, well, I need you to go to the emergency room. About an hour later, I finally relented and went to my local ER, which is not the health system that I'm I'm affiliated with. Uh, They asked me the normal questions about COVID. And I said, no, I hadn't had any travel or any exposure to anyone. Um, And they did a chest x-ray and they brought me back and said, you have a really bad pneumonia. 
and your vitals look pretty darn stable for such a bad chest x-ray, we really want you to follow up with your provider right away because there's something else on this x-ray that this could be. And they intimated like a malignancy or something. And I thought, oh, that, that sounds horrible. So I uh, made an appointment with my doctor and they sent me home with two antibiotics um, and for community acquired pneumonia and uh, said, start them today uh, and get in to see your doctor. They handed me a mask. That was the first time anybody was masked me or anybody, no one in there was masked and they uh, sent me home. And interestingly, I never had a fever. So they, that was one of the triggers for COVID testing. No one even brought up the word COVID to me. And I finally asked them, could you please test me for the flu? Because I know a viral infection and this is viral. I am so achy and miserable that I think I have the flu. And so they tested me for the flu and I was negative, but they really assumed I had a bacterial infection. And so there was no, there was not even a question of whether they would COVID test me. Just to stop you there, you, you were asked when you went to the emergency department about your travel. Correct. So, so it was more of thinking that this was still potentially a risk if you had been abroad or uh, in Asia or somewhere where there was, there's more disease at that time. Correct. Or, or, or other hot spots at the time. And you had none of those. So it wasn't really still on the forefront of people's minds at that point. And if you looked at the guidance at that point from the CDC, I didn't meet criteria because I didn't have a fever and I had never had a fever. I had horrible chills, but no fever. So, um, so that, you know, they just asked the very typical question. Have you had been in contact with anyone who's traveled in Wuhan, China, you know, any of those types of things. So, um, and I, it didn't even cross my mind. I never at that point even thought of COVID to be honest. Um, it didn't cross my mind at all. And then as the weekend progressed, I got sicker and sicker and, my um, GI side effects. So I, I would just have this cycle where I would have a bout of diarrhea and then I would get incredibly short of breath and I would cough and then I would get nauseated and I had a horrific headache and I would just collapse. I mean, I was sleeping about 20 hours and I'd wake up long enough to just run to the bathroom. And I kept thinking, oh my God, I'm on this antibiotic and it's number one side effect is diarrhea. I need, how long am I gonna have to take this? This is such a horrible thing. So as I continued to get worse and my shortness of breath got worse over the weekend and um, said, you know, I've got an appointment with my doctor Monday afternoon, I'm just gonna tough it out. You know, I'm gonna go see her. And uh, I did. And I went Monday afternoon and I could barely walk, uh, went in and she was concerned. She said, you know, you really I know you don't want to, but I would I would really suggest you go back to the emergency room and you, you know, and you need to have a very low threshold for going. Um, and I said, OK. And my husband drove me home. And uh Took about an hour of being home. I couldn't even, I couldn't climb my stairs to get back to the room. And I just said, I got to go to the hospital. I'm, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be at home. I'm not safe. And uh, so went to the ER where they again um, 
no fever, asked me all the same questions, got me in very quickly, I must say, um, but um, were testing me for everything else. So they tested me for every other virus. They did blood cultures. They gave me more IV antibiotics and they watched me, gave me oxygen, uh, but still not tested for COVID. And as all my viral panels kept coming back negative, um, they then decided, um, first of all, my husband had to leave. So that was the last time I saw him for eight days. And the next morning I had an infectious disease consult and the infectious disease doctors told me that they wanted to test me for COVID because now I met criteria because I was hospitalized. So um, they tested me and it was uh, kind of funny. All of my nurses were taking bets on whether I was positive and they all figured I was negative. When they finally came, I remember my, my medicine doctor and my ID doctor, the residents walked in my room together in the, with their PPE and I went, I'm positive, aren't I? Because I said, you guys wouldn't both be coming in here to chat with me. And they said, yep. And you're going to the ICU immediately. And I said, the ICU, you know, um, they said, yep, we need to watch you. So what happened with the uh, antimicrobials then, antibiotics themselves, which they, they had you taking because uh, they thought you had this uh, bacterial pneumonia um, and maybe you thought you were at risk for sepsis or something like that. So once you found out you got the COVID diagnosis, how did that change your your therapy? Yeah, my, my antibiotics were stopped immediately. So as you mentioned, there's a um, lot of misinformation that was has happened around the whole COVID pandemic and, and scientific papers being early released, et cetera. So you're a healthcare professional and health, you know, an educator in pharmacy and now COVID survivor. And during this time where where this is happening to you, did you, did you have feelings of feeling alone, vulnerable or scared because there just weren't good answers or solutions to the problem at that time? Yeah. And I, and I'd say that interestingly, my nature is not to be a fearful person at all. I I would say my motto is no fear. So I wasn't fearful at that point of dying and maybe that was just stupid, but that wasn't my fear. That was my family's fear, but I was so alone. Um, I felt incredibly isolated. I also felt like I couldn't get an answer that was a real answer. Um, Part of it was you couldn't even get anybody because it took so much effort to get anybody in and out of your room. I am a huge believer of knowledge is power and I just didn't feel like I had it. And I felt like as much as people wanted to give information, they didn't even know what information to give. Um, I didn't know about how I was going to go home. Did I have to test negative twice? Nobody tell me. I didn't know. I felt like my poor husband was sitting at home isolated. Nobody would test him. He couldn't get tested. He didn't meet any criteria for testing, even though he'd been around me. You know, it was insane. And I didn't know. I just felt like you've got to keep me here in this bubble because we don't know enough to send me home. And and who am I going to get sick? So. Now you're on the other side of this with this hindsight, um, the actions that fr- the frontline or pharmacists in the, in the clinics or in, in local pharmacies can take to educate 
people about their medications and, and COVID and all this, trying to help them understand and manage through all of the information that's out there? You know, I think um, I'm very close being at UCSF to a world-renowned medical center where our infectious disease pharmacists are were in charge of these investigational drugs and determining how to acquire them and who got them and being on the infectious disease teams and antimicrobial stewardship. And so the inpatient side, I'm very aware of, but it's not the world that the public is aware of. And the public knows the pharmacist is the person at their, their corner pharmacy that they go to pick up their prescriptions or they may be asking advice. And I think to me, in the time of lockdown or in the time where people are sheltering in place or are restricted, that was one of the places people were continuing to go. And having the pharmacist be someone who could be the teller of truth or the ability, the person that could um, be there for someone to ask questions of and feel like they got a healthcare professional that was knowledgeable and unbiased and caring about their particular situation. So I think the community pharmacist plays a huge role. They also played a huge role in testing. Pharmacies became testing sites. Um, and as we roll out the vaccine, it's going to become hugely important that the pharmacist be the purveyor of information because people are very afraid of this vaccine. We already know that many people are saying they don't trust it and they feel it's being rushed and they don't want to get it. And that's our strategy. If we can't get a good vaccine, this is going to be a really difficult battle with COVID and any infectious disease in the future, especially viral. So I think we need to, as pharmacists, take that role seriously, listen to our patients, be informed, give information, and, and be there to listen because people are isolated. They need somebody to talk to. And you're accessible. You're the healthcare professional that's accessible. I think that's very, very important. Um, and that's a very good message. Thank you, Marilyn, for sharing with our listeners your COVID-19 journey. next guest is Dr. Ryan Stevens. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Ryan Stevens, and I'm one of the infectious disease pharmacists at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, a little bit of my background is that I got my doctor of pharmacy from the University of Montana and then completed my postgraduate training up in Alaska, where um, we started an antimicrobial stewardship program. And that's much of what my role continues to be today is antimicrobial stewardship and inpatient infectious diseases here at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and I also do a little bit of work with the outpatient antimicrobial stewardship efforts, as well as our outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy program or OPAP program. And Ryan, before I begin with some of the questions, uh, can you also describe the team of what you work within um, for your antimicrobial stewardship team? Yes. Uh, so our antimicrobial stewardship team uh, consists of uh, infectious diseases pharmacists. There's four of us on campus. One predominantly works in HIV and TB. Uh, one predominantly works in our outpatient antimicrobial or parenteral antimicrobial or OPAT program. And then there's two inpatient infectious diseases pharmacists uh, that work full time. And then we have different physicians that also rotate through our antimicrobial stewardship 
service. And so at any one given time, there's a pharmacist and a physician that are reviewing uh, what we call flags or sort of uh, alerts to potential opportunities to improve antimicrobial use on the inpatient side. And this all sort of falls with under the, uh, uh, within the banner of the Infectious Diseases Division. So to begin our conversation, I want to take you back to February, March of this year, uh, very early days of COVID pandemic for the United States. And you were at Mayo Clinic at this time, correct? Correct. In your current role. And so at that time, how did COVID, the pandemic, start to impact your clinical practice? Uh, well, first, I'd say, uh, you know, the, the late February, early March timeframe is generally a timeframe I've tried to sort of block out of my memory because it was so uh, such a challenging time. But the first thing that I did was uh, just practically speaking, we moved to working remotely in early March. And so that just sort of changes team dynamics and changes the dynamics of your work environment, obviously. The second thing is that we started to see a change in patient volumes, uh, and this was generally a lull. You know, being in a relatively small community in the Midwest, uh, we weren't the first people to start seeing COVID cases. And so what we actually saw was in, in March, we actually started to see a lull in our patient volumes and sort of a decrease in patient volumes while we prepared for the pandemic. And that was uh, really where a bulk of the work was and a lot of difficulty uh, was, was found was in preparing for what we knew was sort of going to be inevitable at that point in time. And so uh, in March, uh, it shifted largely from a, a clinical role of, of doing uh, patient level antimicrobial stewardship to sort of a more global or, or local perspective of drafting guidelines and reviewing literature that was sort of rapidly emerging uh, with questionable quality and trying to prevent runs on different uh, pharmacologic agents or pharmacotherapies that were being touted as effective or potentially effective for COVID. Uh, things like tocilizumab and hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir ritonavir that were sort of the early front runners in pharmacotherapeutics in the disease state. And biggest thing was that we were trying to prevent uh, big runs on these agents from preventing those who actually really needed these for other indications uh, from obtaining them. Things like hydroxychloroquine for rheumatologic conditions and making sure that those who had a, a legitimate and, and sort of FDA approved need for hydroxychloroquine were still able to get it. This also sort of then um, bridged into the need to steward our anti-infectives. Anti and so we know that as respiratory viruses circulate, uh, this has been seen over and over in the winter months and sort of a seasonality to antimicrobial prescribing, that as respiratory viruses circulate, a lot of times we'll see increases in antimicrobial use that sort of parallel those. And so we wanted to establish ways to, to identify those patients that were potentially getting unnecessary or inappropriate antimicrobials. And then all this sort of came to a head with the reality of needing to take the, the existing stewardship tools that we had and use them for a very new or sort of unique task, which was um, stewarding things that, that may not be your traditional stewardship targets, uh, like the drugs I've already mentioned, uh, making sure that infectious diseases was being consulted as appropriate, making sure that antimicrobials were being used appropriate, and then just even understanding the local trends and, and admission trends from the virus. And so taking things that were largely built for other purposes and repurposing them into the environment of a pandemic, sort of all, th all of those items kind of seem to flow, you know, in a timeline fashion from late February through the end of March. So you had, you had definitely had some concerns. You had concerns with uh, 
antimicrobials or other drugs not being available for those that needed them because they were being touted as potentially potential treatment. And then they, like you said, they would be come shortages because they'd be procured and, and there'd be a run on, on certain individual drugs. Um, and so with that in mind, and then just making sure people were treating appropriately, um, you and your team came up with a, a strategy to try to take that, which your platforms, which you normally use, and to try to adapt the system to track patients. Uh, and I want to mention um, that this is this approach was detailed in a letter that was published, uh, a letter to the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology in April that you wrote up. And in that letter, you described your adapting your audit system to track SARS-CoV-2 patients, those that had been tested um, and receiving medication and those that might need careful stewardship. Can you describe a little bit more about the concerns you had at that time and what some of your goals were as you were developing that process? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to mention is just that uh, I'm sort of the new kid on the block with regards to antimicrobial stewardship here at Mayo. They've had a really robust and longstanding program for a lot of years. And so a lot of this infrastructure that was previously developed was developed long before I came. And we have a fantastic group um, of enterprise-wide, sort of across the Midwest, Florida, and Arizona campuses of infectious diseases, antimicrobial stewardship pharmacists, and physicians that um, have all sort of contributed to this effort. So it was a, a really a unique team dynamic uh, from sort of a national stance within our enterprise. But the biggest thing, uh, we sort of asked ourselves two questions um, when we were preparing for this and looking at how we could leverage our existing infrastructure. And the first was, do we have a mechanism by which we could identify patients who were COVID-19 positive in order to sort of review both the management of that patient uh, from an antiviral or antibiotic standpoint? And then the second is, do we have a mechanism by which we could identify patients who were receiving these off-label or repurposed therapies or even newer antivirals um, that were in disagreement with sort of our local treatment guidance documents and what we were considering to be standard of care here at Mayo within the Division of Infectious Diseases? And so, in order to tackle sort of these two separate issues, we created two uh, what we call stewardship flags. Now, these are part of our prospective audit program, basically meaning we get a notification when a patient meets all the criteria or the order or the logic within that uh, flag. And so the first flag was specifically designed to identify patients who had a ne negative COVID test, but were receiving therapy with an agent that could potentially have been used for COVID based on early literature. And again, this takes things like tocilizumab or hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir, ribavirin, lopinavir, rotonavir, et cetera. So basically, if you had a negative test and you were on a drug that could treat COVID, then we wanted to be notified um, so that we could stop those drugs in order to steward those, those medications effectively. The second flag was designed to identify patients who had a positive COVID PCR, regardless of their therapy, sort of allow for some local epidemiology within our pharmacy team. Or uh, patients in that flag could also have had a pending COVID PCR and an order for an active uh, pharmaceutical. So again, an opportunity to, to try to steward those medications when there's not yet a clear bona fide reason for the patient to be receiving them. And so both of those flags were designed to sort of tackle the two questions that, that we had set out to solve in the beginning. 
you know, there's a lot of attention to new therapeutics or when we're, when, when we have a vaccine and that sort of thing. But as a clinician, a lot of the understanding and how to treat this appropriately to affect the morbidity and mortality of disease has, has been so, solved, or at least the solutions have come through the clinical practice, which is what you're involved in. And I'm wondering, how did you deal with this when early on you didn't have really good evidence-based scientific data to make decisions on? Yeah, this was really unique. And I mean, I've... I've um been practicing as an infectious disease pharmacist for 10 years. And this was something that I, unlike anything I'd ever seen before, I think most in the profession would probably echo that comment in that you had literature that was rapidly emerging that was largely based on either theory or in vitro studies and sort of proposed uh, possibilities and models. And, and honestly, I think as healthcare providers, we look at the best available evidence that we have in order to make decisions. And so the unfortunate thing is that in March, the best available evidence we had was, was really not very good. And so in that sense, what we've had to do all along, and there's been a fantastic team here at Mayo that's been doing that, um, that I've been fortunate to be a part of, but is looking at what's the best available evidence that we have and um, what's the risk versus benefit ratio of these different therapies? And so again, early on in the pandemic, hydroxychloroquine seemed like it was gonna be a, a, a good option based on in vitro studies and sort of proposed theory. And then more and more data began to emerge about um, concerns for G6PD testing and QT prolongation and cardiac arrhythmias. And as more and more evidence came along, we, you know, you look at things and you go, boy, the, the risk is really now trumping the evidence. And so we're going to have to shift our therapy. So we built with the, the infectious disease team, I was the pharmacist um, within this group, but we were able to, to craft a local treatment guidance document. And then as new evidence would emerge, we would hold the new evidence up against our current evidence and say, is this strong enough to change our practice or not? And um, that question was sort of asked over and over early on in the pandemic. And now we've gotten what I would consider to be a fairly um, a, a fairly solid piece of evidence that's wrapped into our local guidance document. And it would take a larger degree of evidence to shift us one way or another, or a larger sort of strength of evidence to shift us. And so I think that's been the a, a huge benefit that I've experienced here is having a great team uh, multidisciplinary, constantly evaluating the literature for for new um, evidence, and then comparing it to what we already know, and evaluating everything in sort of a risk versus benefit light. So now, so now you're six months or or more into this. Are you concerned about antibiotics being overprescribed in in COVID patients at this time, or were you at the beginning? Am I concerned about antimicrobial prescribing in COVID? Um, this is a, an interesting question. I was uh, fortunate to work with uh, Kelsey Jensen, who's at our Southeast Minnesota site, and uh, doctors Jack O'Horo and Adi Shah. And we did a, an early evaluation of antimicrobial prescribing in our patients with COVID that's also published in ITCHI. Um, and what we found was kind of interesting. Uh, this was in response to a paper that was in uh, clinical infectious disease in May that showed a rate of antimicrobial use in inpatients of about 70%, but only 8% eight, 8 of them actually had a, a co-infection, so a, a bacterial co-infection that required use of antibiotics. So a pretty staggering gap between 8% and 72%. So we looked at it locally and we actually found that we had a 
uh, 59% of our inpatients received uh, antimicrobials empirically uh, that were diagnosed with COVID. And that tended to increase in both duration and intensity and frequency if as someone's severity of illness increased. So the, the higher uh, their acuity, the more likely they were to receive antimicrobials and even broad spectrum and long duration antimicrobials at that. That's fairly consistent what I think has been seen uh, in a lot of these inpatient studies looking at inpatient antimicrobial use. The interesting thing that, that was most interesting to our study team anyway, was we found that um, across about, about 250 outpatient visits, the outpatient antimicrobial prescribing rate was only 2%. And so uh, it does appear that in the outpatient setting, uh, antimicrobial use, at least in our location was fairly low compared to maybe even compared to other respiratory viruses. And we uh, kind of hypothesize that this is likely due to the fact that you've got widespread education of a circulating respiratory virus. The public and the providers are all aware that it's there. Um, everyone knows that it's a virus. And we have what we call diagnostic certainty, which means that you have a positive test. And based on that positive test, the provider feels very confident in their diagnosis of COVID. And so I'm concerned about it, but at the same time, I think there, there are other things that we've seen that have been surprising, such as the outpatient data. And we continue to keep a pretty close eye on our outpatient and on our antimicrobial use in our COVID-19 patients, both in the inpatients and outpatients, um, and, and try to keep tabs on that. So having access in the outpatient setting, it's having access to understanding now whether someone's COVID positive or not is helping to guide the prescribing in the outpatient setting. It would appear it would appear that way. Yeah. And and another interesting uh, finding is that a lot of our follow up care for our COVID nineteen patients, as able, is being performed via telehealth. And so, uh, where you typically have a face to face, sometimes you can get um, like a face to face prescribing pressure from the patient or their family towards the physician about saying, "I don't feel well, and I want something that will make me feel better." And a lot of times, that's perceived as a as a prescribing pressure for an antibiotic. You're not getting that in this case because you have a positive uh, PCR, you have diagnostic certainty, and you don't have a face-to-face -face encounter. You're actually doing telehealth. And so mm -hmm. um, both interesting dynamics that are potentially influencing the outpatient prescribing rate. The only other thing that I'll mention about uh, potential concern for antimicrobial use in COVID-19 is the upcoming flu season and, and with winter months. I think that's a big concern we all have. And if we look at the data on influenza from the Southern Hemisphere, we haven't seen the same level of influenza and not really even close to the same level of influenza in the Southern Hemisphere. However, you know, with potential of two circulating respiratory viruses and the need to distinguish one from the other um, and potential complications from both, I think we have to be hyper vigilant about um, infection prevention and about appropriate antimicrobial use, especially going into the winter months with that potential at hand. Thank you, Dr. Stevens, for sharing your experience with all of us in how you adapted and developed new strategies in caring for COVID 19 patients while still focusing on the appropriate use of antibiotics. Our next guest is Dr. Monica Balasegram. Thank you. Uh, I'll just introduce myself. Um, I'm a medical doctor trained uh, in the UK. Uh, I've been working both as a clinician and a researcher and a public health practitioner um, for uh, probably about 25 odd years. 
uh, yeah. I'm currently the executive director of um, GARD-P, which is the Global Antibiotic R&D Partnership. And GARD-P is a public-private partnership and a product development partnership with a mission that's really aimed at accelerating the development of new and improved treatments for bacterial infections and ensuring their appropriate access with a global perspective. Um, so that's, that's who we are. And you've spoken and written previously about the unique ability of nonprofit groups to mobilize these public-private partnerships. Has your vision of the role of nonprofits and cross-sector partnerships for AMR changed at all in the response to the COVID pandemic? Yeah, thank you. I, th I think I'm, if anything, more convinced of the role of having uh, a multi-sectoral approach to tackle complex issues, um, COVID-19 obviously being a, a very dramatic one. But antimicrobial resistance is is an extremely important, extremely complex issue that is uh, not just affecting health, but um, society at large. And this is exactly what we've seen with COVID-19. So why, why are nonprofits important and why is this kind of organization important? I think we have to look at the fact that we have to help um, catalyze a reaction from many different actors and in, in a way harness the best of many different actors and sectors, um, whether they are coming from government or academia or the private sector, whether it's a specific innovation or an approach that we're taking, um, and to give you a very concrete example, in, in any individual project where we're trying to develop a new antibiotic or new treatment, um, we have to not just work with, say, a company or even a small company or biotech that that's, has an innovation of interest. We have to work with partners around the world. We have to work with academic centers. We have to work with clinical trial units. We also have to bring governments together, uh, and we have to ensure and, and help to harness resources. Now, why is this important? It's, it's because we are acting not simply as just a funder. We're not just uh, channeling public funding into a project. We're trying to also look at what is the global approach that needs to be taken to ensure responsible and, and safe access across the world. So not just for countries where there's a market um, or countries that are funding the project, but where this, this is going to be, where these treatments are going to be needed the most where there is a big public health problem, but where we also have to think uh, not just of access, but appropriate introduction and stewardship. Uh, we also have to understand that this is a long-term problem that has to be solved. We're not here to come in and drop funding for three or five years. We have to think of this as a kind of generational project with objectives that are um, going much further. How can we not just bring new treatments? How can we change policy and guidelines? How can we ensure these treatments are introduced at the ground level? How can we ensure that clinicians and, and healthcare practitioners know how to use these treatments responsibly? How can we think about other factors such as diagnostics that may be important? How can we get policymakers to take the right steps to, uh, I would say, incentivize and support the introduction of new treatments? How can we get policymakers at international level to change guidelines, at national level to change guidelines? So we take all of these different perspectives into account. We feel that the role of non-for-profits can play a very catalytic role, and not just in terms of bringing resources or funding, but also in terms of the framework of the strategy of linking partners together and of taking a more global approach. Uh, and I think in COVID-19, we've seen this accelerated in a short space of time. And that really offers the possibility of what could be done if significant resources and public commitment and government commitment is put in. 
which I still think is is lacking to some degree with antimicrobial resistance. But it does mean that I think there may be many different types of approaches and vehicles like nonprofits that can play an important role in the in the long term and not just the short term. What's your approach and strategy to working with the private sector mm-hmm. in this catalytic role? And what are some of your lead initiatives that you're currently focused mm-hmm. on? Yeah. So, yeah, this is these are good questions because I think it helps to maybe demonstrate what I'm talking about from, from concept to reality. So I'll take two different types of projects we're doing. One is trying to develop new treatments for newborn babies, for neonates. Why would we do that? That seems to be an extremely complex task to do. Well, we do it because it's needed and very, very few people are doing this. And because if you actually just look at the numbers, look at the number of deaths caused by antimicrobial resistance, there's an estimate of 700,000 deaths a year. Uh, that's a ballpark estimate. But there's another study that shows about two to 300,000 deaths are caused by drug-resistant bacterial infections a year. Okay, that was actually published in 2015 or 2016. So then you actually think, okay, so there's one specific population that's disproportionately affected, and this is a, 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 this, these are newborns. So if you just think about where the need is and where the burden is, even in, in areas of the world like in Europe, this is the population that should be the, on the top of the pile, but they're not. They're in the very bottom of the pile. There are very few drug development projects that are ongoing dedicated towards neonates and improving neonatal treatments. We still have the mainline WHO recommended treatment of ampicillin gentamicin. We know there is widespread resistance to penicillins and to aminoglycosides across the world. So we are very, very far behind. We see a massive problem. We see very few people acting on this. This is why we have developed a project on neonatal sepsis. This is why we our project is based on how can we not just improve treatments using existing antibiotics, but how can we accelerate the development of new antibiotics in the pipeline that will be of high value for neonates. So that's the objective. After that, what we've done is look at where, where are the opportunities, where are the low-hanging fruits, where are the, the, the opportunities that are emerging through the, the in, in innovation and in the pipeline. And through that, we have taken a fairly pragmatic approach to try and accelerate development of combinations of existing antibiotics, but we've already also identified you know, which antibiotics in the pipeline could be of interest. We've even partnered with a company uh, in the US, a biotech company with a drug that's now in phase three, and we're trying to accelerate the pediatric and, and neonatal development of this treatment in the longer term. So there are, there are things that we are doing concretely, and we know that as a non-for-profit, very, very few people would be focusing on this space, even though there's a very high need. We know that we don't just have to develop treatments, but we have to change guidelines, we have to change practice, and we have to ensure good stewardship of this treatment at the ground level. And most importantly, we know that we have to take a global focus. There are babies dying all around the world from this problem, uh, and not just you know a place where there will be, I would say, uh, a, a commercial incentive. We have to work with the private sector, and it's essential we work with the private sector because a lot of very innovative approaches and a lot of innovation is coming from the private sector, especially biotechs. But these are exactly the companies that may not have the resources or the expertise to conduct a, a complicated you know, drug development project for neonates, let alone you know, adults where you know, small companies are struggling to bring new drugs into market and ensure long-term access because there's actually even no financial, sustainable financial incentives for this. Can you speak about how you've addressed the challenges that have been occurring around the world um, in running clinical trials during the COVID pandemic? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I think unfortunately COVID has had a massive impact on uh, the whole sector of, of, of biopharmaceuticals. And, and in fact, I would say outside of running COVID clinical trials, pretty much all clinical trials will be impacted one way, shape or form um, with, with significant delays. And this is very unfortunate because we don't just need to ensure that we can develop treatments for COVID-19. We need to develop treatments for other big public health challenges where significant morbidity and mortality occur. But we, as, as, as we've said before in, in GARP, COVID-19 has shown that we have to better prepare for pandemics, both the ones that may emerge and the ones that are ongoing, like antimicrobial resistant. And that's why it's imperative that we continue and in a way double down on our work on conducting clinical trials and conducting drug development or, uh, or development of new technologies to address antimicrobial resistance now. Um, as I've mentioned, we have been in, impacted by COVID-19. It has meant delays in our trials. In fact, um, we've had to pause uh, our, our one, one big trial that we have undertaken um, and had to put in adaptation measures and actually wait for a period of time before we could restart recruitment. Um, so there's several things that we've done, both to ensure safety of our patients, um, that we have recruited patients, we will recruit in the future, also of staff uh, who are conducting these trials. It's extremely important to ensure, first and foremost, that we are doing things with a safe and ethical approach and that we can have confidence in our trial data, but also ensure that, um, you know, the people who are volunteering for trials and the, the, the staff that are conducting these trials um, are, are uh, really have, I think, all the measures in place to really safeguard their interests. And, and this is absolutely critical. This is what ensures good quality trials at the end. But after that, I think it's an issue of continuing to apply ourselves into our mission and focusing on our mission. Uh, I think the fact that we have not, I think, got distracted by lots of other things that are going on, but said, okay, we have to concentrate on delivering on these trials and conducting these trials, accepting that there will be delays has meant that nonetheless, we've managed to put in place uh, I would say contingency measures and have allowed us to continue recruiting in studies. So um, that is just to say that what we will have to accept down the line is that there will be some delays in delivery of, of you know, our, 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 of clinical trial data or registration and so on, that this may occur. Um, but we're doing everything we can, including what, what we can do in the coming year to, I would say, accelerate recruitment and catch up where, you know, whatever lost time that we've had. And we feel that governments have to understand that for, for us to do this and deliver on our timelines, it's extremely important that antibiotic development and, diagno and I would say development of diagnostics and other measures to address antimicrobial resistance. It's really important that these things are supported in the, in the upcoming years. So not just GARDP, but all other actors who are engaged in this space can actually have the resources and space to, uh, I would say, make up for lost time. The next question I want to ask you about is advocating for research on antibiotics that are needed by vulnerable populations. And I, you've touched on this. The examples I have are elderly or immunocompromised, but you've also talked about neonatal mm -hmm. infants as well. These are some of the same groups that are now being affected by COVID or at risk of COVID infection. How can the how can researchers or policymakers make sure the needs of these populations continue to be prioritized for AMR initiatives? Yeah, it's a very good question, but I'm going to flip that question and make a point to say that in the kind of AMR world, um, uh, we've been very bad at 
putting a human face to the problem. And I think this has been part of the challenge of why we are often unable to communicate effectively with policymakers. Uh, and it's partly because, you know, antimicrobial resistance affects, you know, it's a kind of cross-cutting issue within your healthcare system. It's not a kind of vertical issue that you can kind of compartmentalize and show clearly. It, it touches, you know, um, uh, surgical patients, cancer patients, newborn babies, you know, elderly patients uh, in, in, you know, nursing homes. It, and it's almost impossible to put one definitive face to it. But on the other hand, now we're seeing, you know, the impact of an, in, a, a pandemic like COVID-19. We should be better articulating to say the impact of antimicrobial res resistance is going to be pervasive across society. It's going to be pervasive across your healthcare sector. This is why it's so important. But then we need to show those human faces. What does it, what does it mean behind that? That's why talking about these vulnerable populations is important and it is useful because it under, makes policymakers understand what is going to happen, what does it look like, and it creates also that human connections that I think a lot of policymakers subconsciously need if they're going to be, I would say, pushed towards making you know tough policy decisions. Um, and that's why I think you know now we do we can say yes, it, it's going to be an important problem in you know just basic care nursing homes. In the past, we can treat a lot of elderly people you know in outside hospitals, well, that's great. But what happens when you start developing resistant infections that become more complicated and require hospitalization? Or conversely, you know, we want to avoid hospitalization uh, and, and for certain populations. But what happens, or, or reduce hospitalization, but what happens when you have a, a, a person, an elderly person coming in for a routine procedure that then is vulnerable towards getting these drug-resistant infections. And that can have a massive impact on that individual as well as more globally if you add all the numbers up. Similarly, the same, you know, we make the case with neonates, you know, this is a newborn baby at the beginning of their life. You just think of the disability adjusted life years you can get from that. Of course, a newborn baby dying is catastrophic from a public health level. But if you look at it at a personal level, losing a newborn baby from a preventable infection is not really forgivable from a societal perspective. And it shows that we need to be doing much, much more in terms of what we are, where, where we're prioritizing our research and development. If we are still using the same standard of care after decades and have done very little research, say this is an alternative treatment for newborn babies because we have drug-resistant infections, it's shameful in a way, but it also has a very big impact in terms of from the public health and societal perspective. So we have to be putting the human face to this. We have to be saying, where is this happening? But we also have to be then utilizing this to advocate for change and advocate for policies that are going to address this problem. Exactly. And part of what the podcast is about, to be honest, um, that's exactly what this is about. And um, bringing the connectivity between the patient, the clinician, and, and those that are thinking bigger picture here and that can force change in policy and all people can be advocates from, from the, the patients or even the individual citizens. At the end of each interview, I ask each of our guests the same question. 
What is the most important lesson you have learned from the COVID-19 pandemic that can be used to combat AMR? Knowledge is power. And we have to use our knowledge to look at appropriate therapies. And when I look at COVID um, and I look at antimicrobial stewardship and the overuse of antibiotics, we have to follow the science and we have to do the science. And I know it's painful to think of the delays of science and, you know, not being able to, to get something, you know, at our beck and call, but we need to have the knowledge and the data um, behind the use of medications and COVID has proven that. And I think that's the key in antimicrobial stewardship. We need to use drugs appropriately. And if there's any message a pharmacist can give, that's the message. The biggest lesson that I've learned is that you really have to work as, as part of a team. And this is obviously super applicable to antimicrobial stewardship, where involving a lot of different disciplines will help you be successful in your different intervention types by having pharmacists and physicians and nurses and microbiology. You get a perspective that's outside of your own. And I think COVID-19 is reinforced for us that if we try to do too much as individuals, then we burn out very quickly or much more quickly. And so when we operate as a team as a whole and everybody kind of owns their specialty and their expertise, things are more sustainable. And then the the, the last thing that I'll mention is just um, the power of sort of thinking outside the box. As we have new challenges arise, um, like a viral pandemic, where we may not have thought, well, we'll use these antimicrobial stewardship tools to to sort of combat or, or help um, prepare for a viral pandemic. Thinking outside the box has allowed us to be creative in, our, in the way that we've adapted and in the way that we continue to adapt those tools. Yeah, and I think probably the lesson that I hope will be understood is that when we talk about pandemic preparedness, we really got to mean it, right? We just don't say it. And I think, you know, now we're in the past, I would say, even though we saw, you know, problems like Ebola and Zika and, and SARS, you know, we said these things look serious. They could be really dangerous at a global level. You know, it's been a generation since we've been hit by a pandemic that really caused impact around the world. That was HIV AIDS. People have already forgotten so indeed, you know, we forget that we have been dealing with previous uh, a previous pandemic that killed millions of people actually around the world. Uh, and I think so I hope that governments especially and the general public can understand that, you know, it's really important that we prepare uh, and address pandemics. And we do it, you know, in a way that requires coordination between different sectors and between governments. You just can't do it alone. It's just not effective. And People are seeing that in, in real time, unfortunately. Um, but I hope that this will be applied in the field of antimicrobial resistance because this is an unfolding pandemic in its own right, killing you know hundreds of thousands of people every year and will continue to kill hundreds of thousands of people every year for the next you know years to come and it will get worse. And you know, we need to now mean it when we say we're going to prepare and address this other pandemic, antimicrobial resistance. You've been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world. 
on the impact of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.